Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the author and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia or its employees. Due to discussion of traumatic, sexual, and violent content, listener discretion is advised. It was right around the time when it was coming out in the news that my mom was contacted by a student that was no longer there, that had turned 18, that pulled themselves. And then his mom was sending a lot of people in newspaper clippings and stuff, obviously before the internet. So my mom, she was aware of it. This is Mark Barber. He attended Anna Wakey from 1984 to 1986 during the criminal investigation into the organization. It was during the end of his time there that parents were beginning to find out about the allegations against Anna Wakey and Lewis Petter. You could see a lot of changes. We had some visitors. They built a new clinic. There was a lot of improvement. Several staff members pretty much disappeared overnight. The staff members that I had seen, that I knew were messing around with students, they kept their distance and they weren't on campus nearly as much. With allegations stacking up against Dan Awakey, insurance companies were beginning to refute payment. This would lead to Mark's termination or exit from Anna Awakey to be rushed through at this time. I was terminated March 21st, 1986, and I knew about four days before I was getting terminated 
they wanted me to come in, put in some paperwork, what my plans were. I had already been looking at schools and finishing up, you know, high school education, which I was about three years behind on with some of the testing. But they kind of rushed through it. Later in life, I found out the insurance stopped paying them because of all the allegations. The uh, Champus said, we're not paying you. They stopped paying it. They went to my mom and dad. I think they asked him for like $78,000. So I think instead of my mom just coming up and getting me and not having that uh, closure moment that you have with your group, when they pick you up by your jeans and throw you in there and everybody gives you a hug and you exchange phone numbers and you know you get your stuff and you have a nice send off. You know, a lot of guys didn't get that. A lot of guys just got cold shoulder, see you later. They left one day, they went to the clinic and never came back. We don't know what happened to them. So yeah, that's how, that's how my last day ended up. Scott Hull was another attendee of Anawakey at this time. He says that as soon as your insurance ran out, Anawakey would then terminate you. Yeah, you know, that time during the investigation was a weird, weird time. I had been there for quite a while and I was about to get released. And all of a sudden, you know, they started like giving me all these awards and stuff, which was kind of weird. They made me a junior staff member and gave me this thing called the silver medallion that they only give to one person a year. I don't know. It was just like they were trying to normalize things. Actually, actually, you know, when they they called it terminating, when you actually, I guess, graduate from there. And usually, typically, this I certainly found out, the when you graduated was when your insurance ran out. So my insurance ran out, so that meant, oh, you're cured now, go. <laughs> you know, so I was there right as all that was going on. So I don't remember exactly the way things were around the campus. I just remember it being very, very weird. For other patients, like Mark Butler, as soon as their parents were informed of the scandal, they decided to take their kids out of the program of their own free will. I didn't know that the scandal broke until I got a letter from my father or a phone call from my father saying, I'm, I'm taking you out. Because inside, everything was hush-hush. We didn't know nothing. I was told that there's a big lawsuit and criminal charges and la-da-da-da-da-da for my family. They said, we're, we're taking you out. The stories of what the patients at Anawakey had to endure were beginning to leak out through the media. He says that it was, a, they were told to do it, and at the time, he was 14 and a half, 15 years old, they didn't know any better. They were told to do what? To take their clothes off, and they were take, taking the pictures. As therapy? As therapy. The boys have to get down in the septic tank and bucket them out. How were they dressed? My son says that he was, he was naked, uh, and after he got through doing the work, he was given a chemical to put on his body and go to the shower and bathe with something to kill the bacteria. Mark Barber says that while he believed many of the staff knew about the investigation and allegations against Petter and Anawaki, most would still not speak up. Other staff members, I'm pretty sure, knew what was going on. There was a story that a staff member told me after I got out of Anawaki. I actually found him in the early days of the internet, found his phone number, called him, 
and talked to him. We had talked about what had happened, how in a way he got shut down. And he said that one of the nurses went into a staff meeting and said, what are you all gonna do if one of these students ends up with AIDS or HIV? And he goes, you could tell who the predators were and who the predators weren't by that comment, by the look on their faces. This is what the staff member told me. And he was in the group, he was in there, you know. So with that being said, yeah, I would say, I would say all of them knew. I think some of them turned a blind eye and you would have to be very naive. And I don't think you would have made it as a Anawakey staff member, group leader, even kitchen help if you didn't see the abuse going on. Everybody knew and everybody kept their mouth shut. Over the past several weeks, we have received a number of very serious allegations concerning both the facility out there and a the number of individuals involved with it. It was just a form of their therapy. They were told to do it, and at the time, he was 14 and a half, 15 years old. They didn't know any better. I asked him, why are you letting this happen? Why are you covering up for Louis better? He had no answers to that question. The thought of having an institution paid in a hospital to be such a despicable place and to do absolutely the contrary of what they should have done. I'm disturbed over the fact that something is still going on at Anawaki. I'm Josh Thane, and this is Camp Hell, Anawaki. The Anawaki Institution has now been under investigation by Douglas County authorities for three months. Just last week, investigators with the Department of Human Resources began talking to the more than 100 children now at the Douglas County facility. Right now, today, we do not feel or we have not found anything that would indicate that the children are in immediate danger. Assistant Human Resources Director Jewel Norman says her agency has found no evidence at this point to shut down the Douglas County facility. The investigation into Anawaki had broadened to include local Douglas County authorities, the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, and now the Department of Human Resources, with multiple counts of sodomy attributed to Petter and charges against other employees racking up, the center was still able to stay open. Petter had been freed from jail after supporters in the community raised the $1 million to cover his bond. As the investigation grew, more counts were being filed against Petter, eventually totaling up to 24 counts of sodomy against him. One of the other main suspects was head of therapeutic services, Jim Womack. Here's former DA for Douglas County, Frank Wynn. James Womack was a supervisor at it and awake. And I don't mean he just supervised kids. He supervised employees as well as kids. And he was somebody that it was clear he was somewhat close to Petter, but at the same time, it appeared there were some kids that he would take off in ways that didn't seem appropriate. So as we started investigating, we were able to find out that there had been some kids that he had isolated and had had relations with. I don't remember him being someone that was very friendly. You know, he, he was a little bit more of a, we felt like a strong arm fellow. James Womack, I know when we talked about his case, his situation, we just felt like 
he wasn't really Lewis Petter's partner. They weren't partners in crime. It was like, well, that's the way we can do stuff at Anawakey, so I'm going to do it. That was clearly our belief as to who James Womack was. He might do some things for Petter because he worked there or because he knew what Petter was doing, but what he did seemed to be very much on his own because he believed that's what you could get away with out there. While trying to find a charge that would stick for Petter and other Anawiki employees, things could get complicated very quickly. Journalist Albert Edgen says that the strongest case against Petter and others would have been the sodomy law at the time. I think it's interesting to look at the criminal case from the perspective of the prosecutors. They had a couple of challenges, and there was sort of a hierarchy of laws that they were dealing with. In Georgia, sodomy was illegal. So if they had testimony about a homosexual relationship that became physical, that involved acts of what was defined in the Georgia law as sodomy at the time, then they had a slam dunk case. So they were very aggressive about going after the sodomy cases. That was the easiest thing for them. The next thing is child abuse on Georgia's side and child abuse on Florida's side. Now, without knowing the the details of how those cases are made or what those laws in those two states were like, then that means from the prosecutor's point of view that what they had to think about was How is this going to play out in a courtroom? And they have, I think, three problems. One is they know, well, first of all, in Florida, where there is no sodomy law, there's no anti-sodomy law, if they're dealing with a child abuse case, or if they're dealing with a case where there's a relationship between a child and an adult, the defense is going to say that was a consensual relationship you got to think about it like a prosecutor. Like, that's going to be one thing that the defense is going to do. The bottom line on that is that the easiest cases to make are the cases that they made in Georgia on sodomy, and the Florida authorities went along with that because they thought, we get this guy in jail, we get this guy in jail. Then you have the additional challenge of getting the victims to talk about it because it's so embarrassing. It's a horrific experience that they had, and they don't want to talk about it in the courtroom, so it took a while for them to organize the case. They brought their cases against the people they could bring them against. The problem that still exists is that Florida had a list of, um, and Georgia probably did too, but Florida had a list of abusive counselors, which means older people, adults 18 or older, counselors who had abused kids that they didn't prosecute and they couldn't prosecute. Some of them they couldn't find, but they found at least one in Tennessee and he was working at a psychiatric treatment center for children. So that was then. You have to think how many of these people that they didn't find are still working at these places now. I asked Frank Wynn if anyone from Anawiki's South Campus in Carabell, Florida, or the girls' campus in Rockmart were charged and convicted. I did not participate in any charges. Both places were other jurisdictions, for one thing. So I wouldn't have been involved in whether they were prosecuted or not, other than I didn't have anything to prosecute them for in Douglas County. I don't recall that there was anything significantly wrong that somebody had done 
that they had gotten prosecuted for in either place other than what we were already prosecuting for. I mean, Lewis Petter, we know, did stuff in Mexico and Florida, but that doesn't mean we're going to prosecute him for what he did there. And if other people did stuff there, those jurisdictions would have had access to whatever we had. I do not remember anything specific about criminal charges related to any employees at Carabelle or Rockmark. Once you've prosecuted somebody, what's the value of using resources to prosecute them again? And if they were a victim slash, you know, someone who's been groomed, then do they deserve to be prosecuted in another jurisdiction? That's somebody else's call. But at the same time, I could understand them deciding, no, they, they shouldn't be prosecuted. I don't really have an answer. I don't remember discussing or having contact with prosecution authorities from Carabell or Polk County. Along with Petter and Jim Womack, administrator and Petter's son-in-law, James Henry Evans, was arrested as well. Eventually, Lewis's wife, Mabel, would also be arrested for failure to report child abuse. A little more than two hours ago, a handcuffed Mabel Petter, the wife of Anawaki founder Lewis Petter, was escorted into the Douglas County Jail. The 67-year-old Anawaki nursing director has been charged with four counts of failure to report child abuse. Standing same, Mr. Evans. A few minutes later, her son-in-law, former Anawaki administrator and acting director Henry Evans, was taken in handcuffs into the jail, charged with 23 counts of failure to report child abuse. GBI agent Tony Gailey said investigators had to forcibly enter Evans' residence to make the arrest. What we're saying is that these incidences occurred. They should have been reported either to the Sheriff's Department, the District Attorney's Office, or the Department of Family and Children's Services. They were not, and that's a violation of the law. Womax was presented as a trial where we settled everything except the legal issue of the statute of limitations. It was just obvious that we were had narrowed the whole case down to he did it. The question is, legally, could we prosecute him? And so why not just present that to the judge? With Petter, we had so much more. And so we weren't going to be dealing with just one semantic. There was a lot more there with Petter, financially as well as abuses. Wynn says that while the investigation into the sexual abuse charges was ongoing, with the documents seized from Anawaki, there was now a RICO, a racketeering case, being built against the Anawaki organization as well. A racketeering case would involve any pattern of illegal activity that is carried out by a business which is owned or controlled by those engaged in such activity. When we're getting ready for trial, my number one focus was on the sexual abuse charges and the information related to that. that. That was my focus. At the same time, we had people from the Prosecuting Attorneys Council as well as the GBI helping us with the case. They were a whole lot more adept and knowledgeable about how to analyze the financial part of Anna Wake. When we're talking about what other charges might have been brought as opposed to what were brought, while we were getting ready for a trial, our negotiation incorporated the fact that we were investigating other matters. 
that were financial in nature. My memory is there's no doubt they knew about it. No doubt they knew we had a lot of documents and they knew what the documents were that we had. They could have assumed that we were idiots and that we didn't know what the documents were showing about their activities, or they could make the correct assumption that we had people from the GBI and from the Prosecuting Attorneys Council that understood what they were manipulating in the financial documents. So at some point, we began crafting a RICO indictment. Some or all of the lawyers for the Petter family figured that out. And I remember Mr. Petter's attorney asking me, I need to know, have y'all actually got a document with names on it and charges related to other matters? And I said, we have a RICO indictment that has names of other family members on it. And we intended to go forward with that document. Part of what they asked was, uh, and we agreed to this, was to drop that aspect of the case. Negotiations had begun between the Petters' attorneys and the prosecution. Frank explains that this was to try and ensure as much as they could that the organization behind Anawaki and its financial interest would come to an end. I say they ask. We ask for a, a lot, too. We ask that the daughters forfeit everything. I remember thinking that, okay, they're giving Anawaki Estates completely to the nonprofit. It would look like a huge tax donation. So part of our agreement was you give up everything you own and you can't take a tax deduction because it would have been inappropriate. It wasn't their property. After over two years of investigation and preliminary hearings, an agreement between Petter's attorneys and the prosecution had been made. In April of 1988, Petter would enter a guilty plea in return for the investigation to drop the RICO indictment. Petter pleaded guilty to 19 counts of sodomizing 12 former Anawaki patients. Counts number four and five, you charge with oral sodomy and anal sodomy with a different individual. How do you include those charges? Yes, sir. Counts number eight and nine, again, with a different individual, you charge with the offense of anal and oral sodomy. How do you include them? As to counts number 10 and 11, again, with a different individual, you charge with oral and anal sodomy. How do you include them? When they're wanting us not to go forward with the RICO, at the same time, we addressed all the finances. If you read through the uh, comprehensive plea agreement, there's a lot of financial information in there that has nothing to do with the sexual abuse charges. It had to do with us doing the best we could to correct what they had stolen. Uh, as far as I was concerned, they had taken something by manipulation and fraud, and it was equivalent to stealing. We agreed if Lewis Petter pled guilty on the sex charges and we worked out the financial restitution as best we could, then we just basically stopped writing the RICO indictment. Chuck Olson uh, is the main one that 
would have been involved in it. He was brilliant when it came to details, especially in going through financial documents and being able to craft incidents that would have been part of the RICO indictment. And we were probably about halfway through with it, but it was a lot of information and Chuck was working his butt off trying to organize it and make sure that he had it complete. And I don't know if Chuck was disappointed or not, but I think he he was based on the financial restitution that we got from the agreement. I think he was satisfied that we accomplished what needed to be accomplished with, in essence, stripping the family of what everything we could find that they, they had taken from Anawaki. Ultimately, some of the properties the Petter family acquired were given back to the Anawaki Estates Foundation. For other properties in other countries, such as Canada and Mexico, it was just too far out of the reach of Wynn's investigation. Did they hide some cash at the place in Pachuca? Certainly finding that he had gone to Mexico That was something that we had wondered about. That's one of the reasons Earl sent some officers down there. Other than being able to corroborate kids' versions of how things were down there, I don't remember they were able to really get physical evidence to bring back other than photographs and a little bit of real estate type of information. Douglas County had a lot of expenses in this investigation, as well as the state of Georgia, but it was Douglas County's case. Anawaki Estates and or the family members, everything that we were, we knew about, except Mexico. <laughs> we, we didn't want to go back and mess with any property that was down in, in Mexico. So I don't recall that we did anything with the Mexico real estate, but everything else that we had was turned over to Anawaki Inc. as far as the real estate goes. There was some stuff that was given to Douglas County. There was some about 300 acres in Canada, and that was, I believe, in Lewis Petter's name. That property was given to Douglas County. There was a lot of jewelry that was given to Douglas County. There was some money out of the cash bond, and I remember that being a dispute later on as to who got what out of the the cash bond that was posted. But the intent was the cash that came from Petter. We, Douglas County, took some of that money to help defray costs. So part of the comprehensive plea agreement involved them agreeing to forfeit those funds to Douglas County. The funds that were traced to Petter, my memory was we allowed a certain amount for Mabel to keep, and then a majority of it was forfeited to Douglas County. As far as other stuff that was done, I believe the Carabelle property was turned over to Anawaki Inc., all the property in Douglas County that was not otherwise in Anawaki Inc.'s name was supposed to be turned over to them. The property in Polk County I believe, was Anawaki Estates and had to be turned over. In return for giving up almost all of Anawaki's financial interest and, in turn, any control he had over the organization, Louis Petter was then sentenced to eight years in prison with an additional 12 years of probation to follow. To give a comparison to a known trial from today, 
Nixium Secret Society founder Keith Vernier, who was charged with sex trafficking of children and conspiracy to commit forced labor, was sentenced to 120 years in prison, essentially a life sentence. I asked Frank if he believed that eight years was really enough of a punishment for Petter, being a known abuser for over two decades. Well, yes, I think it was enough based on the information we had at the time. This might sound a little mean, but I wasn't sure how long he would survive in prison. And so that factored into it also. And when I say it may actually sound mean, I didn't think at the time he entered the plea, I felt like whatever time he was, he might not make it eight years. If he did make it, he would come out and be, you know, very unhealthy at the end. I felt like he was old enough and in bad enough health to where eight years was, uh, I think I mentioned earlier, it was like giving someone else 15 years, partly because of his health. I think he wound up surprising us and living longer than we expected. That would have been his side of the negotiation. I guess he figured he he knew he was in better health than we believed. You think he pulled a fast one? No, not necessarily. I mean, it, it was still, based on what we had, it was still a fair sentence for the, back at that time, sentences weren't as harsh in general as they are nowadays when it comes to any kind of sexual abuse. And eight years might have been a little bit low, but we covered everything and we were able to get. The family didn't serve as much time as a whole if you just added up everybody's sentences, but they gave up everything financially that we felt like they should, that we didn't think they deserved. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge 
indulges your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. While the Douglas County authorities were doing all they could to put a stop to the Anwaki organization under Lewis Petter, another group of former victims had begun to file a civil suit against Petter and Anwaki. When I was practicing law, I had some neighbors who walked into my office, or former neighbors, and they had a son at Anawaki Treatment Center. And they were suspicious of the $39,000 bill that they had received. So we discussed it, and I told them I would look into it. But before I could really look into it, they sued my clients for non-payment. This is Pat Edelkind. She is one of the two main attorneys who handled the civil suit against Anawaki. Pat's career is an impressive one aside from her involvement in the Anawaki case. She was the first single mother to ever graduate from Harvard Law School. Not only that. I had graduated. I was so fearful of not being able to pick up after 10 years that I worked extra hard, I suppose. And I graduated uh, valedictorian in my class, first in my class. It seems her story is similar to Frank Wynn and Earl Lee's in that one small issue ended up snowballing into something bigger than she ever could have imagined. I've heard about Anwaki since I was looking for a place to put my youngest son, who had learning disabilities, to try and get a hold of that when he was young. And he was around 11 and stopped him from some of the behaviors that he was exhibiting. When I was searching for a place, I came upon Anawaki, which seemed to be ideal. And I talked to Mark, my son, about it. And he wasn't happy about it, but he wasn't unhappy either. So he tried it, and it seemed to work out fairly well initially. Shortly after Pat entered her son into Anawaki, she began to hear some things that made her question the program she eventually decided to remove her son. He wasn't really making the progress that I thought he should have been making. And I was a little suspicious of the place also. My son had picked up grammatical error in his speech. And also he, he just wasn't thriving. 
he told me that uh, they will work all the time and that there will shorten therapy sessions with the psychiatrist. In fact, the psychiatrist was legally blind and that they had very short sessions, five or ten minutes, if that. Usually more like five, although the charge was for the full hour. Now, this really bothered me. And I didn't want him just working out in the cold and the elements all the time he was there. Some vocational therapy I thought would be good, but not that much. It just got to be a bit much. So I, I removed him. It's around the same time that Pat decided Anna Wakey was not for her son when her neighbors came to her with their financial complaint against the center. What was happened to them is that they had their child at home with them, but he was being charged for hour visits when they were like five or ten with the psychiatrist and all those kinds of things. And he would tell them that things were going on, and my son told me also that it wasn't as it seemed. And then my son had said, that they heard that Doc Hedder, who was the head of the institution, could go gay on you. And there were beatings. It didn't add up to what they said it was going to be. One of the things that really got attention of my former neighbors is the fact that uh, they were paying out of pocket. They didn't have a hospital or insurance and things like that that would have picked up this bill. So they were attuned to what was charged. Most of the parents, though, had either the school system, but not really the school system so much, as individual insurance that would pay it as a health fee. Pat would soon find out the social workers who worked for Anna Wakey would refute any allegations from patients. The social worker, who is the person that the parents talk to, would hear all the stuff that the children would say, but then she would say, oh, no, that wasn't so. And all of the social workers did that. And the social workers would tell the, the parents that you can't believe what your son tells you or your daughter because they are mixed up to begin with, and that's why they came here. They just want to go home. And after a while, that just did not wash. The social worker would say, oh, that didn't happen, or that didn't happen. The parent might have gone and said, look, he said he didn't have therapy, or he said that he didn't get educated, or whatever they were supposed to do, they were not doing all the child was doing was laboring to build the house over his head, his roof. And all of the social workers would deny any abuse whatsoever. But these children were getting abused. There was one that was beaten so badly and knocked into the wall that it broke his eardrum. That was appalling. Pat would initially file a countersuit on behalf of her neighbors who had been sued by Anna Wakey for back payment. The civil suit would soon come to cover an umbrella of charges against Anna Wakey. 
I first filed on their behalf, I filed a counterclaim. Since Banawake had sued them, I could sue them back. And I did, and I alleged fraud, malpractice, violations of RICO, and also physical abuse and sexual abuse. And of course, Anawaki denied that. But as a matter of fact, other parents started coming to me because they were more well. And then I associated with Randall Blackwood that he would handle trial work and I would take care of all the plaintiffs and most the depositions, those kinds of things, which it was a lot of things to handle because eventually we had 131 plaintiffs in separate lawsuits. These were individual lawsuits. However, <laughs> they were tried in multiple suits. I think we had about eight. Pat would work side by side with well-known attorney Randall Blackwood and his wife Florence, assisting in handling all of the documents as well. With such a large case, Pat would need reinforcements. Randall Blackwood was a renowned trial lawyer, and I was just one person. So I needed someone who was really excellent at that. So I associated with him, and we ended up splitting the fee. I did a lot of the paperwork, most of it, but Randy did the, the trials, and I helped, of course, but he was the presence in the courtroom. And we had one judge assigned to us finally, Judge Jack Etheridge, and he was actually very good too, because there was such a mass of paper that we needed one dedicated judge just to keep it straight. Here's Judge Jack Etheridge remembering the circumstances involving the trial. This is taken from a video clip thanks to the Richard B. Russell Library for Political Research and Studies at the University of Georgia. Another case I remember quite well was called the Anna Wakey case. One lawyer essentially took over the claims of all of these people, and there was more than 100, I guess. And it was just too complex a case to ask any sitting judge to handle. And so I was asked to take on those cases and did. And we took maybe a year or two to deal with all the preliminary motions, a lot at stake. And uh, at the end, I was able to segregate about 10 young men as the plaintiffs against a few of the defendants. And then we were going to try the other cases incrementally as we went along. We set up a, a, a separate courtroom. We built a, a courtroom for that trial. And it was tried over a period of, uh, I think, 10 weeks. In order to be able to go into trial at any time, they used a former Rich's department store to make an ad hoc courtroom. Yes, Rich's department store had closed, but... In the department store, we had a courtroom built so that the judge would litigate the cases, and we could litigate the cases, and 
gets uh, them settled and have the access at any time. So that's where Judge Jack Etheridge held the hearings after we had put the money into making a courtroom. And uh, we uh, tried the one case that went to trial. Pat would work in tandem with Frank Wynn and Douglas County authorities. By sharing their findings, they would help each other with their cases. The district attorney of Douglas County, where the institutions were, it was Frank Wynn. And at the time, there had been a case of cases where people had gone to Mr. Wynn and had complained about sexual abuse and battery and those kinds of things. And so he's looking into it. So I shared my knowledge with him, and he sent other plaintiffs to me. And that's how we got so many. But something needed to be done about Anawaki. Sarah Tillis would also have a hand in making sure these civil proceedings did all they could to take Petter down. Journalist Albert Edgen says that her diligent notes kept during her last few years as a board member greatly helped the case. Four people involved in developing the narrative of the civil case, which dealt with Anna Wakey's management and the deterioration of Louis Petter's control. And those four people were Sarah Tillis, Pat Edelkind, Randy Blackwood, and Randy's wife, Florence. And there's documentation that shows how Sarah Tillis went through weeks and weeks and weeks of recounting what she had experienced day to day, keeping notes, collating notes, and finally what emerged was a narrative of the way the place fell apart. And Sarah was at the core of that. Sarah Tillis's experience with that, Sarah Tillis's determination and uh, fortitude was what really, really, in the end of the day, exposed everything. Randy Blackwood was just a bulldog of a lawyer. A really nice guy, a little guy, kind of slightly built, but man, he was tough. And he was pissed. He took this personally. Randy was meticulous in his research, but Randy was shrewd and manipulative. Randy told me a lot of things through the course and working on the story. There was a point in time when I was uh, pulling all those documents from the state archives that showed the hospital licensure manipulation between Parham and Petter, and also showed the long-term relationship between Parham and Petter. Albert says that he, too, would share documents from his covering of the Anawaki story. All of these factors would help paint the picture of how bad Anawaki had gotten. Randy had a good case, but when I brought that material to him and showed him what I had found and asked him about it, then he and Florence decided that Florence would go back and do the same research I had done, so they would have it independently of me. But at the same time, Randy and I developed a, I would call it a partnership even, because I was working on the story and he was working on the case, and at the end of the day, we were working on the same thing. So we became friends, and, um, you know, he, he was very helpful to me in 
that he would leak things to me. He would give me information. He would guide me toward things that he was working on. But at the same time, his goal was to do two things. One was to, in the public's eye, to turn Petter into, into a demon, which was not difficult to do. But Randy was determined to do it. That's what he was doing with a whole range of reporters and people in the public eye. So his goal was not just to, to collect the information and to help the, you know, the children that had been abused, but from a strategic, from a tactical point of view, his goal was to make sure that the, by the time he got this litigation to court, that there was going to be a very, very negative view of Anawaki and Petter in the public's eye. And he succeeded. Taking on a years-long case can often be personally and financially taxing to the counsels involved. This was especially true for Randall Blackwood and Pat Edelkind. My understanding is that uh, Sarah Tillis and her husband uh, helped fund the, the litigation. Randy and Florence, I know they had to borrow money along the way. At the end of the day, they were so certain of the outcome that they were willing to financially risk what they had to risk. All of the lawsuits were financed by myself and Randy Blackwood. So there came a time when this was a very heavy load to carry. But we did. However, I came close to bankruptcy, and I believe Randy did also. I was fearful of losing my house. We were. Although we plowed plenty of money in it and took out loans, (laughs) it got to be pretty frightening when it came time to pay the piper. I just despised them. I had been personally fooled, but also legally. It was horrendous, the thought of having an institution paid as a hospital to be such a despicable place and to do absolutely the contrary of what they should have done. The juveniles should have been taught, should have had school. They weren't being taught either. They were there to be helped, and they, they weren't. That's the sad truth of it. In fact, they were harmed. Pat Edelkind was attempting to take down a million-dollar operation one involving political figures, a board of trustees, and a whole staff of upper management. Handling a suit like this is something that can certainly make you a target. Pat says it is during her involvement in the civil suit that she believes someone from the Anawaki organization may have tried to harm or even kill her. I was leaving Morningside, Virginia Highlands area, and I was on I-85 going north, and uh, my car suddenly went out of control and hit the divider wall and rolled in front of three lanes of traffic, which I luckily survived. I had broken my hip in the crash. She believes this was no accident, but that someone had knowingly tampered with her car in an attempt to hurt her. Well, my car, which had been parked on the street at that occasion, was tampered with, and it went out of control on I-85 and rolled across three lanes of traffic. I was fortunate to survive, and it was a new car. So I thought, 
what on earth? And then I received a call from a psychologist, formerly with Anna Wakey, who didn't give me his name, but what he said, I'll never forget, it was chilling. He said, this is what Lewis Petter trains his lackeys to do, is to do dirty tricks on people to try and hurt them if he thinks they're hurting him. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. By November 7, 1986, nine women had come forward to sue Anna Wakey on counts of racketeering, conspiring to abuse them, and attempting to defraud them financially. Just a few weeks later, the case would grow to 22 former patients suing the center, naming Petter, Jim Parham, and other board members as defendants. Once again, one of the hardest things was attempting to get victims to come forward to speak in court. Mark Barber remembers his reaction when first finding out about the suit. We first heard about the lawsuit 
And uh, I, I guess it was a class action lawsuit. Uh, my mom got some paperwork in the mail. And I want to say 87, 88, somewhere around there. And my mom asking me, do you want to talk to anybody about this? And at this time, I had my fill full of counselors and therapists and psychologists, and I really didn't want to speak to anybody about anything anymore. Um, but it got to a point where I just kind of shoveled it real deep and just told my mom I, I, I didn't have anything to say. Nothing really happened to me. I don't want to talk about it. Pat Edelkind says that trying to get the younger patients to admit to the sexual abuse was very challenging. Fortunately, some older, former patients would be willing to come forward. Well, the younger ones would admit to the uh, battering and physical abuse, never the sexual abuse. But uh, we eventually learned to put on the older ones that were more comfortable with talking about what happened, even though the statute of limitations had passed, they were able to tell what happened in the sexual abuse. And it was pretty astounding. One key witness that agreed to come forward in the civil suit was one of the earliest instances of Petter's abuse, Bob Camp. Camp had been one of Petter's victims during the 1970 trial actually living with him while the trial happened. Journalist Albert Edgen was able to speak with Camp at length during his time covering the Ann Wakey story. Bob Camp was a troubled young man who was treated at Ann Wakey, whom Petter lured into a sexual relationship. Petter had him stay in his home. Petter went to Mexico with him. Petter made him into a counselor. Petter uh, denigrated Bob Camp's father, who was an alcoholic, and brought Bob's mother into his confidence. Bob Camp was a vulnerable person whom Petter exploited. Bob was a really a brilliant man but severely troubled in his youth. But he was smart about dealing with his troubles. He knew he was troubled. Uh, his behavior would range from being emotionally out of control to being very, very determined to analyze his own behavior and to, and to deal with it. Randy Blackwood told me about Bob Camp and said that his story was the clearest case of abuse that Randy intended to use in his litigation. But Bob, understandably, was hesitant to talk. Uh, Randy Blackwood's first job was to persuade Bob to talk in a courtroom. But before that, because as I said, part of Randy's strategy was public vilification and getting the story out before the case came to trial, Randy wanted me to talk to Bob. Bob wouldn't talk to me, but finally Randy persuaded him to. And I had a long conversation with Bob Camp, who ex told me his whole life story, including the abuse by Lewis Petter, sitting in a truck in the parking lot outside the DeKalb County Courthouse in Decatur, Georgia. And among the things he told me was that he was so troubled at the time, he was in his 30s, 
that he had had such a rough time that he didn't have any male friends his age. He was a basketball fan, and he didn't even have somebody that he could go to see an Atlanta Hawks game with. And it was an emotional moment for me, certainly for him, to hear that that was the depths to which Lewis Petter had driven some of the children that he should have been helping. At that point, I decided that I was going to do everything I could to take Lewis Petter's story, make it public, and take him out. You'd have to have been sitting in that truck and listen to that man, this 30-year-old man whose life had been destroyed, who'd been manipulated, and he knew it. He, the thing about Bob Campus is he's so damn smart and so analytical that he knew what had happened to him. And Bob has written a, a, a really a very clear-headed and honest account of the whole deteriorating relationship between him and Petter in which he documents that. He documents how Petter did it. But the thing about the documentation is not that what's stunning is not the narrative. What's stunning is Bob Camp's analysis of the narrative, which is built into that piece that he wrote. He actually knows what happened to him. He's able to analyze it as it's happening, and he can't do anything about it because he is so troubled. Because the reason he's in Anawaki is to take care of that. But instead, that is, is exponentially made worse by this guy who is a real estate salesman. Bob Camp would write a 67-page essay detailing his abuse by Petter's hands. It would trace his first instance of molestation during his first interview with Petter, to living in Petter's house for years, to eventually committing himself to psychotherapy and realizing the manipulation he had been subjected to for so many years. The analysis is the most amazing part of it because Bob says, and this is in retrospect, but he had to have been been having these thoughts along the way. One of the things that comes through is Bob is stunned at how much control Petter has over him. But he's able to say, here's how he got it. He knows how Petter controlled him, but he can't stop it. When Petter was going through this investigation that Wren and D'Agostino uh, precipitated, Bob Camp was living with Petter in his home. Petter had such control over Bob Camp at the time that the person that probably could have been the best witness for the D'Agostino Wren accusations was under Lewis Petter's thumb. And it took him another 15 years to get out from under his thumb. He was a child at the time. He was a teenager. Bob was such an honest guy and so determined to get better that he checked himself into Georgia Regional Hospital for six months voluntarily because he wanted to help himself. He had had a downturn and he wanted to help himself. Now, significantly, he didn't check himself into Anna Wakey. He goes to Georgia Regional and he gets good treatment there. He gets, he's got good people professionals who are dealing with his troubles and he tells them all about it and there's a blow-by-blow account of what happened to him there and one of the things that happens of course is the counselors there begin to learn about his relationship with Lewis Petter so they bring Petter in and Petter admits all of this to Bob and yet in his meeting with Bob and Bob's mother 
He tries to manipulate Bob still at that point. In a document from Bob Camp's therapy, he had managed to get Lewis Petter to admit to his years of abuse. Petter had been so certain that this document would never see the light of day that he spoke openly of his manipulation and sexual acts with the then minor. Bob Camp managed to get copies of his records and shared those with Albert years later. Lewis Petter at that time apparently reassured himself that because this was a confidential meeting in a psychiatric treatment program facility, that this will never come up. So he was, for once in his life, he was honest and forthright, although still manipulative. He was honest to the degree that he admitted that he had had this relationship with with Bob Camp. What he didn't count on was that eventually Bob would get well enough to make it public, that he would be able to be strong enough to handle that. Petter underestimated Bob Camp. Bob eventually became probably the the headliner litigant. He was the guy that Randy and Pat used as the example of the whole earth manipulation. Bob Camp was important to the litigation because his story was the clearest, the oldest, the most persistent, and really the, the most horrible of all. And he was willing to talk about it. He had the courage to stand up and say, this happened to me. He had a lot of support, and I never met his wife, but man, I have a good impression of her because one of the things that he told me repeatedly was that she was supportive, and she didn't have to be supportive. You know, that was a horrific situation that she found herself in, and she stuck with that guy. The civil suit against Petter had ballooned to involve over 110 patients from Anawake. Due to Bob Camp's testimony, Pat Edelkind and Randy Blackwood would have basically a spoken confession by Petter in one case of his abuse. With the civil trial going on upwards of three years or more, Blackwood and Edelkind were struggling financially to try and keep the trial going, an attempt to bring some type of justice to the victims of Lewis Petter and company. Next time on the conclusion to Camp Hell, Anawake. It gave them something to start on, both to recuperate, but have lived what they lived through. No one would trade money for that. I still live with survivor's guilt. I don't know if that'll ever leave me. It has absolutely changed my life. It changed my body. I'm hoping that by doing this podcast that it will bring me some closure. The most troubling thing to me is that there are still people who were abusing patients at Anawake who are in the healthcare systems around the South. He hurt so many people. I felt like The balance between good and evil on this planet shifted. Camp Hell Anna Wakey was created and hosted by Josh Thane with producer Miranda Hawkins and executive producers Alex Williams and Matt Frederick. The soundtrack was written and performed by Josh Thane and Adrian Barry. Archival footage provided by WSB and CBS News. 
Find us on Instagram at Camp Hell Pod. That's C-A-M-P-H-E-L-L-P-O-D. Educate yourself about the issue of child abuse and things that you should look for at the Darkness to Light website, d2l.org. That's D, the number two, L.org. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.